This is Daniel Hagnarm from Preparing Kids for Life at PK4L.com. And our podcast is for all things parenting. This is day 21 of our 365-day journey with you. My wife and I are passionate about helping parents reclaim their rightful place as the number one expert on their own kids. And so we talk about the principles any parent can learn and apply to help their children discover the best version of themselves. So we dig into every parent's most basic fears, things like, I don't have what it takes to be a good parent, or I'm not qualified, or I'm going to mess my kids up. And remember, our ceiling is our children's floor. So as parents, we need to always be learning and growing. So for the next 365 days, you have been invited into our experiment. We are going to walk alongside your journey as your personal outfitters, guides, and allies every day every step of the way. So we've been talking about technology and how, you know, again, to reiterate, I'm not anti-technology. I'm not suggesting a return to the dark ages where we all washed our laundry by scrubbing board by the river. I'm not talking about that. I use technology. I love it. What, What we are focusing on, though, is that we really care about the way in which technology is used. And the only way we can really be intentional about it is if we understand the principles governing it. So as I mentioned in the first uh, episode of this series on technology, we're not talking about the practicals because practicals in technology especially change all the time. We're talking about timeless principles, things that as you decide how you are going to use technology in your family, um, these are the principles to consider. And again, it's not its not like technology is good or bad, right or wrong. It's a tool. But like any tool, you just want to make sure that you're the one who's using it, not the tool using you, right? So we're going to dig into today, uh, starting with principle number four, principle number four, Uh, which is technology changes everything. And if you think about it, with technology, there's no separation of things. There's only absorption. It's kind of like if you imagine a a glass of water and you placed a drop of red dye in that glass of clear water. Does that create clear water plus a drop of red dye? Or does it create an entirely new coloration that affects every molecule of water? Yes, obviously it's answer B. (laughs) Uh, It changes everything. And so like the red dye, technology doesn't just kind of add something, but rather it literally changes everything. Just think about television, for example. After television, America was fundamentally and profoundly altered. It changed political campaigns. It changed home life, school, church, industry, business, etc. It changed all of that. It's, it's like it wasn't this equation TV plus America equals new America. No, that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. And so the consequences of technological change are always far-reaching. They're mostly unpredictable and they are virtually irreversible. And so as we've talked about in the last episode, there's always a trade-off going on between the benefits of taking risks and the harms of ignoring consequences. 
And so the most the most creative and daring innovators within the technological market are always striving to exploit new technologies to the fullest. But in the process, they are almost completely unconcerned by whatever traditions are overthrown in the process. In fact, they rarely, if ever, consider whether or not or even how a culture is prepared to function in the absence of these discarded traditions. And so you have to always think about, because technology changes everything, you have to ask yourself immediately, at what cost? You know, the contributions of America's iconic innovators, people like Morgan, Bell, Edison, Ford, Carnegie, Rockefeller, Goldwyn, etc. They were remarkable in their own way, but they also obliterated the 19th century in the process of creating the 20th century. And again, we're not trying to make some sort of judgment here, whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong. We're simply trying to focus on, on what happened, right? And I'll leave it up to you to decide what's good and what's bad. Again, the point here is is not rendering a judgment. It's just that we do need to be very sober in the way we assess the benefits and harms, the gains and the losses that are presented by technology. So let's turn our attention to something maybe a little different, a little, little closer, near, dear to my heart. That's the idea of education. And so think about this. Who had the greatest impact on American education in the 20th century? John Dewey or Horace Mann? And again, if you're unfamiliar with those two, they are are kind of both widely known as sort of the the so-called founding fathers of the modern public school. Well, I'm going to suggest that the answer is neither. Actually, the greatest impact has been made by quiet men in gray suits in a suburb of New York City called Princeton, New Jersey. You see, these are the men who developed and promoted standardized tests, IQ tests, the SATs, ACTs, and the GREs. And these tests literally redefined what it meant to learn. And so these learning objectives have subsequently forced the comprehensive reorganization of public school curriculum to accommodate these standardized tests. And of course, these methods and objectives are later popularized by educational psychologist Benjamin Bloom as what he termed outcomes-based education. And it's interesting because you also kind of turn to, say, the area of politics. And you have partisans on both sides who are loudly blaming socialism, communism, capitalism, corporatism, fascism, any number of isms, right, for the state of American politics. And everybody defines it differently, and there's this big argument, right? Everybody's arguing. But the truth is, is what entrepreneurs in gray suits and gray ties who manage the large television industry in America are the ones actually responsible for transforming the political landscape. Political discourse now has become a form of entertainment. It's true. I mean, if you really think about it, it's a form of entertainment. Political engagement is really basically just a bumper sticker or a Facebook meme and is driven almost exclusively by emotion, not facts. Political campaigns have been reduced to shallow 30-second infomercials or YouTube sound bites. Politicians are then judged by their perceived attractiveness, not their actual 
substance. And so by design, we have largely become the product of whatever media we consume. Edward L. Bernays, the, known as the father of modern propaganda, presciently predicted this outcome, which has, has profoundly influenced our national consciousness in ways that honestly, I still think we don't fully comprehend. But before I go on, I want to read a, a quote that from his book, Propaganda, that he published in 1928. But before I do, I just want to highlight something. This guy is not a, a fringe character, okay? He's, he's somebody who is very well known. Uh, he, he was actually part of the Committee on Public Information, which was an organization formed by Woodrow Wilson to sell World War I to the American public. And so in this process, he was given the task of kind of like marketing World War I to try to get public support behind the war because Wilson was trying to get America involved in World War I. So he was the one who was supposed to drive, you know, everyone's, um, he was supposed to kind of drive the poll numbers, so to speak, and, and get everybody uh, enthusiastic about getting involved in this war that Wilson wanted to, to get involved in. So he was named uh, one of the 100 most influential Americans of the 20th century by Life magazine. I just say all that because I, I, before I read what he said, I just want you to understand this is not some outer fringe guy who's kind of weird or strange. He was very mainstream, very widely respected, and extremely influential. He said this in his book, Propaganda, published, remember, in 1928. He said, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. That's kind of creepy for two reasons. Number one, how dead on it is. And number two, how long ago it was said. Remember, that's from 1928. Um, principle number five, this, this notion that technology has, has always been there. Neil Postman refers to this as sort of the, the mythic nature of technology. And he describes it as a common tendency to think of our technological innovations as if they were somehow God-given, as if they were just part of the natural order of things. I mean, imagine the difficulties that a grandfather might have in attempting to explain a jukebox to his iPod-wearing granddaughter, right? Do this as an experiment. Ask your children if they know when the alphabet was invented. 
The question will likely astonish them. It's kind of like asking them when dirt was invented. They don't believe that the alphabet was invented. It just is, right? And it's interesting because most products of human culture, but especially technology, are simply presumed to have sort of always been there. Cars, planes, television, movies, newspaper, internet, etc. All of these innovations are considered mythic because they are viewed as pre-existing instead of as actual things that never existed until the moment they were created. And here's the danger in all that. It's always dangerous when a technology achieves what we're calling mythic status because at that point, the technology has become so widely accepted that it's almost impervious to criticism, modification, or control. You know, Neil Postman gives this example that if you, for example, announce to the American public that television broadcasting should begin at 5 p.m. and then end at 11 p.m. and should contain no commercials, the idea would be considered totally ridiculous. But not because the public necessarily disagreed with your cultural agenda. They would think it's ridiculous because they assume you're proposing something that cannot be changed. Sort of like as if you suggested that, well, the sun should rise at 10 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. You know, Pope John Paul II put it this way. He said, science can purify religion from error and superstition. And religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. And that's a lot of what we have in this notion of the mythic is that, that it just always has been. Therefore, it cannot be changed or altered. And so I'm going to suggest that actually our enthusiasm for technology can easily be converted into a form of idolatry. And our belief in the benefits of technology can quickly become a false absolute. I love how Neil Postman puts it. He says the best way to view technology is as a strange intruder. To remember that technology is not part of God's plan, but a product of human creativity and hubris, and that its capacity for good or evil rests entirely on human awareness of what it does for us and to us. And I think it's, again, just just important to think about these five principles of technology because in these five principles really contain the questions that we need to ask ourselves. And again, we're not making a statement of good, bad, right, or wrong. What we're doing is we're saying, look, there's some criteria, there's some principles that need to be applied so that when we think about technology, how technology is used, how it should be used, we're, we're just taking care that we are not the ones being used by it, right? That we're the ones harnessing the tool of technology and not the other way around. Because see, the thing is, is that in this assessment of technology, you have a, you have a number of, of multi-billion dollar tech giants. And I'm gonna, I wanna kind of shift into what we'll call the epilogue because this is kind of after the principles, you kind of look at, all right, well, what's the aftermath? Because right now we've got, as I said a moment ago, we had several multi-billion dollar tech giants, right? Uh, companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Intel, Facebook, etc. 
that exercise a enormously disproportionate level of influence over society. In fact, it seems like our national self-esteem kind of is pretty much defined by the number of likes our posts get on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat. And this might be why we work so hard to airbrush these artificially enhanced versions of our lives on social media. Sadly, though, it's gotten to a point where these these Facebook versions of ourselves communicate with other Facebook versions of self, and so meaningful conversation is just about impossible. Consequently, authentic interpersonal communication really becomes increasingly rare. Ironically, even as we become more and more lonely amidst the multitudes of our so-called virtual friends. It's kind of a weird irony because in addition to creating loneliness, social media also enables users to say things to each other they would never otherwise consider in a face-to-face interaction. And so on one hand, technology is offering us this unprecedented level of mass communication. And at the same time, our ability to converse intelligently deteriorates. In our society, we have just these social divisions that continue to deepen. But there's another unintended byproduct of kind of this uh, self-made reality, in other words, profiles, is that we kind of become de facto gods of our highly personalized social media universe. And uh, as gods, we quickly grow accustomed to the the echo chamber of our own self-approval. And every desire is satisfied on demand while all, quote, offensive, confrontive, thought-provoking ideas are easily filtered out of our mental ecosystem. And finally, we reach the intoxicating heights of ultimate moral achievement, quote, tolerance, right? which assumes that everyone agrees with you because anyone who disagrees is automatically Hitler or something. But the the thing is, is this God complex is precisely why we find it so difficult to work and play well with others. (laughs) Interestingly enough, in the United States, in 2010, a Kaiser Foundation study reported that elementary-aged children use some form of entertainment technology an average of seven and a half hours per day. 75% of these children have TVs in their bedrooms and 50% of North American homes have the TV on all day. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics, these are neuroscience researchers who study the brains of children. They are now recommending children, including teenagers, by the way, limit their screen time to a maximum of two hours a day apart from homework. In fact, Dr. Joshua Straub has suggested that, quote, the relational and psychological effects of technology on our kids is mind-numbing. Our kids are getting dumber. Our kids are becoming more self-centered, even narcissistic. Our kids are losing a sense of empathy for others. In the United Kingdom, a 2013 briefing published by England's Public Health Department found 
that the sedentary lifestyle fostered by overexposure to screen time has had a devastating effect on the overall health of children. Their research surveyed 2,000, over 2,000 uh, UK parents of children aged um, 2 to 16 years. Here's what some of their findings included. The average child is more likely to use a mobile phone with confidence before being able to read or ride a bike. And children of London were found to spend an average of 10 or more hours per day on some type of digital device. Now here's the thing. There is a direct link between children's screen time and lower levels of emotional, mental, and physical well-being. In fact, higher levels of TV viewing lower their self-worth, lower their self-esteem, and lower their levels of self-reported happiness. Children who spend more time on computers, watching TV and playing video games actually tend to experience higher levels of emotional distress, anxiety, and depression. And here's the results. Here's that's, that's one thing. So here's a bunch of research studies, which are shocking and appalling on their own merit. But, but now here's the fallout. Conversations around the dinner table have been largely replaced by screens and takeout food. Most children now rely on technology for the majority of their play. And when they do that, that significantly limits their exposure to creative challenges to the use of their imaginations and to physical exercise, which by the way, also limits optimal sensory and motor development, right? Motor precedes development. And so most children now have sedentary lifestyles that are constantly bombarded by chaotic sensory stimulation. And this causes delays in reaching child developmental milestones. And those delays negatively impact the basic foundation skills for achieving literacy. And, and the, the sad, tragic truth is that now most children have become increasingly hardwired for high speed. And so they often struggle with the self-regulation and attention skills required for learning. If this is unaddressed, it can eventually lead to significant behavioral issues. Now, since the sensory motor and attachment systems of developing children are not biologically designed to accommodate the sedentary and chaotic nature of today's technology. In other words, our minds, our bodies were not made for what we're putting into them now in terms of technology. So childhood development has kind of become, well, it's kind of become the epicenter for a dramatic increase in physical, psychological, and behavioral disorders. And the health and education systems have only just begun really identifying them, much less properly addressing them. And so childhood obesity and diabetes are, again, childhood obesity and diabetes are currently national epidemics in both Canada and the United States and have been causally linked to the overuse of technology. The diagnosis of ADHD, autism, coordination disorder, developmental delays, unintelligible speech, learning difficulties, sensory processing disorder, anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, all these things are also associated with the overuse of technology and are likewise increasing at an alarming rate. And so now, now that some time has passed and pediatricians and other health professionals have established some, some baselines of research they figured out that there are four critical factors necessary to achieve 
healthy childhood development. They need movement, touch, human connection, human connection, and exposure to nature. And it's the exposure to these four sensory inputs that promote the normal development of posture, bilateral coordination, optimal arousal states, and self-regulation necessary for achieving foundation skills. So for example, movement. Young children need two to three hours per day of active rough and tumble play for adequate sensory stimulation of their vestibular, which is a fancy way of saying um, motion equilibrium and spatial orientation, and proprioceptive, which is basically sense of the relative position of one's own parts uh, of the body, all of that. So that's what they need. That's the kind of stimulation they need, the movement they need, right? To, To get the necessary sensory stimulation. Touch. Touch is what activates the parasympathetic system, which is one of three divisions of the autonomic nervous system, sometimes called the rest and digest system. But anyways, it also lowers cortisol, adrenaline, and anxiety levels. Human connection. Tactile stimulation through touching, hugging, and play, also critical for the development of planned patterns of movement. And then lastly, exposure to nature. Nature in green space has an incredibly calming influence on children. Well, adults too, honestly. And it really helps to restore their attentiveness and promotes learning. Now, additional research concerning the impact of technology on on childhood development has kind of produced some, I think, some, some interesting results. And so when they talk about the vestibular, proprioceptive, and tactile systems, all of these systems are understimulated, while the visual and auditory systems are overstimulated. Now, the bottom line is what's going on is that the imbalance of these sensory systems is now creating significant problems in, uh, well, really in the overall neurological development. Because see, the thing is, is the brain's autonomy, chemistry, and pathways are now becoming profoundly altered and impaired. And so some of the side effects are coming through exposure to violence through TV and video games, which puts children into an elevated state of adrenaline and stress because the body doesn't know that what they're watching is not real. See, now the brain does. The the brain has a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. The conscious mind absorbs everything as true, uh, as uh, filters it, I'm sorry. So the conscious mind is filtering out things that are true or not The subconscious mind, however, simply absorbs them. It's one of the reasons why our dreams seem so realistic, no matter how unrealistic they are when we wake up and think about them for a minute. But at the time, they seem very real. That's why. But the other thing is that when they're looking at a a violent video game or or TV or anything, um, their body doesn't know that what their their mind does, their mind can obviously process what's real or not, but their body doesn't know that. And so this is why children who overuse technology report persistent physical sensations like shaking, increased breathing, and heart rate, just a general state of unease. And so it's kind of like, in other words, by remaining in this persistent state of hypervigilance, a child's body is entering a chronic state of stress. And you know, I mean, small wonder then, you know, that the creativity of our children is being drained away at such an alarming rate. So it's kind of a, I mean, it's really just sort of a a sad 
sad thing that, that we have going on. But we'll kind of delve into more of this in our in our next episode. So look, I just I just want to say thank you so much for listening. There are literally hundreds and thousands of podcasts out there. You took the time to listen to ours. We're so grateful for that. Please check out our website, pk4l.com for more resources. And please click on this link in the show description if you haven't done so already and download your free ebook, Building an Emotionally Safe Home is our gift to you. Remember, we are with you every day, every step of the way. Until tomorrow, have a great day.